1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Dan Levy, the host. Uh, today, we'll be talking to Katerina Pizzagoni about her new book, The Life Within, Local Indigenous Society in Mexico's Toluca Valley, 1650 to 1800. Katerina Pizzagoni, welcome to the show.
0: Uh, thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to be doing this. I'm very happy that we can have this conversation.
1: Oh, great. Well, it's a terrific book, so I'm really uh, looking forward to getting into it with you. Um you. Can you just start off maybe with telling us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you came to this project?
0: Sure, sure. Well, it is a quite long (laughs) process, right? Because now here we are, 2014, I'm at Columbia University. I got tenure recently, so I went through the whole process, but the project started really quite a long time ago. It was actually um, well before my PhD when I did my MA in London, Um, And I started, in a way, I started getting into indigenous topics and I was very interested in studying indigenous societies of Latin America. Um, You all started like for many people, I guess, uh, falling in love with something in particular. I just uh, went to do some voluntary work um, uh, to Nicaragua one summer. Loved it, and I traveled through the Atlantic coast of Nicaragua, got really excited about um, seeing indigenous people and seeing that they're, they still had their communities, they still had lots of traditions that I assumed back then were coming from um, Uh, back in time and I just wanted to try to understand that better so that's what got me to study Latin American history a little bit in Italy with my first professor Daniele Pompeiano but then I just I moved to England to do the MA because in Italy there's not much you can do in terms of MA or PhD in Latin American history Um, and when I moved to London to do the MA it became clear for me that in order to understand indigenous societies or communities better, I wanted to have a look at different kind of sources. So the sources I was working on for Nicaragua were sources written by the Spanish and the English, um, so reports on what they saw. And I couldn't find any single document written by an indigenous person. And that's when, with my uh, advisor for DMA, we started thinking that if that was my interest, I really needed to move somewhere else geographically. And that's when I started reading uh, the scholarship about Mexico and I found out about all these wonderful resources uh, that I could use in terms of learning indigenous language and get to use the sources in indigenous languages. And that brought me to start a PhD um, and then start my language training with Jim Lockhart. And he's probably was the most uh, important um, um, encounter in my academic life. So I started studying with Linda Newton in, in London and she did, she's an um, um, historical demographer. So she did a lot about indigenous people in, in Central America by counting um, demographic patterns and whatnot. So when she understood my interest, she told me that I really need to do something in terms of the training of the language. So I got this training with Jim, and then I got started with collecting testaments um, and working um, testaments, working on testaments in Nahuatl, translating. And that's how I developed this topic and this interest in the household that then brought me first to do the edited volume of uh, some testaments so that people could see the sources and then the monograph on the household. So it was a long process because I knew I was broadly interested in something. And then I finally hit on a way into indigenous societies. Um, and as you know, probably studying an indigenous language takes up some time in terms of then get to understand it, translating. So it was a long process, as I see nowadays, because I think, well, the book was 2012, but when I started, it was quite a few years back. So here I am now, and uh, I think that has been more or less my uh, my path and that brought me to Colombia a few years ago.
1: That's great. Well, congratulations on tenure. That's, that's terrific. Yeah. But also, I, I think it's such a, a great accomplishment just being able to get into these these intimate lives in the way that you do, because as you mentioned, it's really hard to get into these sources. And there are so few uh, from the Nahua that kind of get at the the inner lives and the daily working. So it's quite an impressive feat, I think, that you, you were able to do that. Um, one of the things I wanted to start off with just uh, to kind of get us situated in terms of the book um, is if you could describe the Toluca Valley and maybe uh, what it's like, and is it kind of an exceptional place in Mexico in terms of uh, what the Nahua community is like, uh, how the Spanish interact with them. If you could just sort of paint the picture for what the valley is like.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I think it's an ideal location for um, this kind of studies because it's it's in central Mexico, so it's the core of the indigenous presence all through the colonial period. Um, And it's a valley that, well before the Spanish arrived, was uh, taken over by the Nahuas. And the Nahuas kind of... uh, Use their language as lingua franca for all the different indigenous groups to communicate in between them. Uh, so we had Otomis, we have Masawas, Matlatsingas, different indi- indigenous groups, but they all had to move on to some basic communication in Nahuatl. So that was established before the Spanish arrived. And when the Spanish arrived, they just kept using the Nahuatl as the lingua franca of the of the valley. And it's interesting because it's a very good case because it's basically one side of the Central Valley of Mexico. So it's the core of the empire of the uh, of the Aztec Empire. And the Spanish colony, but it's still a bit removed from Mexico City because there is a, a, a vast range of mountains that separated the two uh, valleys. So in a way, it's not the case of Mexico City. It is a fascinating one all through the colonial period, but sometimes I find it's also quite exceptional one. Uh, so when we ever look at Mexico City, we can say many things of what is happening to the indigenous people in the uh, colonial period, but what happens a little bit further out that was my interest in the kind of the central area where a lot of interaction is happening, but not the core of the colony. So I started thinking of the Toluca Valley because I thought it was a concrete case that could give me many documents and the experience I was looking for. And then a little bit of that was also serendipity because I ended up in my long stays in Mexico to discover um, these sources of documents from the Toluca Valley that came out of the Juzgado Ecclesiastico de Toluca, one of the local... Um, Ecclesiastical courts that collected these documents and lawsuits for which many testaments appeared. And this was a unit, a set of documents that was moved to the Archivo Histórico del Arzobispado de Mexico uh, just a few decades ago. So I, I started by thinking of the Toluca Valley as the perfect setting to study indigenous Spanish interactions outside of the core of Mexico City, but not in a peripheral area that would give me different dynamics because of the demography. This was a demography that was very representative of the central. Um, uh, of the core of the of the colony, but at the same time not the main city. Um, and then also finding these sources, I was sure that I could have a look at different aspects of indigenous everyday life because of testaments, lawsuits that I could cross-reference and try to follow some people through the sources. And I think that the Toluca Valley gives you this uh, sort of um, landscape all through the colonial period of indigenous people that are of different origins, but they handle the Nahuatl and the, the communications, the official communications is through Nahuatl, so they can communicate and relate to the Spanish that way, and with some Spanish as well, that the not, indigenous notaries have been learning, and there is a lot of interaction with the Spanish, but the population is predominantly indigenous. The, Spanish, um, the core of the Spanish inhabitants is in Toluca City, and all the rest is pretty much indigenous with just a very few Spanish living among them. Um, so I sort of among the indigenous people. So I sort of felt that I had the possibility to study the indigenous household closely with interaction with the Spanish, but still very much indigenous.
1: That's great. Yeah. And and I think I'll get back to that issue about how much Spanish culture infiltrated or got into Nahuatl society but um, one of the things that's really crucial is these testaments that you're talking about and they kind of form the structure of the research And can you just spend a few minutes maybe talking about what those testaments are like and what kinds of information you can get out of those testaments and what was the most useful for you in your research
0: Sure absolutely yeah that has been <laughs> that have been my passion if you want for quite a few years now and I know you also shared that because you you do use them as sources. I think uh, so testaments a good way of getting started with that is that uh, indigenous people didn't have. Uh, the custom of writing testaments before the spanish arrived so it's definitely a tradition they took on from the spanish and they took it on for very practical reasons when the spanish started converting indigenous people and we could you know have a long conversation about to what extent they were successful in that conversion but it became Part of the practices that were established on the daily life of these indigenous communities that before dying, they needed a testament to die as proper Christians. Why? Because then they had some, they were going to make some offering or donations to the church, and they were also going to um, kind of decide how to inherit there, to pass on to the next generation their possession. So they took on this practice. Um, Imposed in a way by the Spanish, but they very much got into it because it was a way for them to um, dispose of their property the way they wanted. So it's something that we see through the testaments: is the Spanish had some uh, some rules, some laws about how to um, inherit the, your possessions. Indigenous people were doing their own things, and the Spanish didn't. Never the testaments were valid, even if there was not an application of the Spanish law. But I think that Indigenous people felt that they could have a voice in passing on their inheritance in deciding how to be buried. So although it's something that they started doing because the Spanish imposed it on them, they kind of appropriated the genre and they created their own way of writing testaments. And so what you find in these indigenous testaments, you have a, usually a preamble that is what the Spanish want to see. And it always starts in the name of the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So you have some of the Christian formulas there. But when you pass the preamble with the formulas, there you find the indigenous household being explained because indigenous people just explain uh, how it is made the buildings they have and the pieces of land and who is going to get what. Um, and then it becomes more personal that you feel the voice of the indigenous testators coming through. They're doing it in front of a notary. There is an indigenous notary that handles Obviously, now what? But also uh, most of the times in Spanish, or then it would refer to somebody who can translate the testament into Spanish, because these testaments are deposited in the parish, in the sort of the, in the parish church, or sometimes they, brought, they are brought to court when then indigenous people are. Um, starting lawsuits to fight over some property rights when they're not happy the descendants are not happy about who got what in the end so i think that we can divide the testaments in basically these two big parts is the preambles and whatever is formulaic that they're taking from the spanish and then is their own voice in describing their household and then the testaments usually ends with uh, witnesses because you had to do it in front of people. Um, well in Spanish had different format for the testament. Sometimes you could do a testament without people, but then uh, without witnesses, but then you had to uh, bring it at some point in front of a notary. What we see is that indigenous people do it in front of a notary all the time. They call the notary, and then they call on witnesses. And in the early colonial period, they were members of their family and friends. For the period I'm mostly dealing with, we see that it's the local officials of, uh, of the Alte, so the gobernador, the alcalde mayor, the fiscal, they are, they are signing on to, to sort of testify that this really happened, and this is the, the, the will of the indigenous testator. Um, so that gives you a little bit of a sense of what a testament is for indigenous people, uh, and I think that it's especially working on the part that is more personal, the household that made it exciting for me, because I could finally find their voice Voices and try to get into the household in in, in a way that I didn't find anywhere else. And uh, Mm -hmm. sorry, I would just uh, add one last thing that um, many of these testaments were then translated into Spanish, as I said, because they were brought to local courts to fight and so uh, for some rights, and so they needed to be translated into Spanish. But it's one thing that I started realizing from the very beginning you cannot rely only on the Spanish translation because it's partial, many things are left out, it goes to the core of the property that is being um, fought on. And, and, but many details are left out. So you do really need to do the work on the indigenous language to get all that you can out of the documents and the, the whole image of a, uh, of a household the way they conceived it.
1: Well, one of the things that's interesting is that you, you talk about, and I don't know if this is because of Spanish influence, but you, you sort of complicate that idea that uh, Native Americans all have sort of a communal sense of property and that all things are shared between Native Americans. But in fact, there are much more complex ways in which Natives, and especially the Nahua, understand property. And so could you talk about maybe the sort of pre-contact... Uh, ideas about property and how they might change with the Spanish, and and if there is maybe more fluidity than we originally think.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a. I'm I'm very grateful for this question because this is one of the things that I got really excited through the research. It's not because I wanted to dismiss the communal aspect of indigenous societies, but because a lot of the scholarship is based on that. And the more I was reading the documents, the more. I was finding out that actually Indigenous people, at least in the handling of their household, are very much free agents. They fight for their own property, for their their household, and the interests of the communities are relative. They are there, but it's much more what comes out is the Indigenous as an individual. And I really wanted to get at that because I think that it's an important dimension of their lives that we need to rescue and put together with the communal dimension because sometimes I feel that when we are only considering the communal dimension, we might also be stuck a little bit with our romantic idea about how these societies worked. And as a matter of fact, when we had a look at that through the testaments, we see all sorts of patterns and varieties. And that's where it gets more interesting for me, because we can get to the, to the individuals. And I think in terms of the handling of the, of the property, I do think that things changed. Um, over time, of course it's difficult to rescue indigenous voices from pre conquest because we don 't have the testaments and from the very early period, the period that usually the scholarship works on for indigenous sources so from conquest to you know the fifteen the sixteen twenties and thirties. We do have testaments, but there are not many. And especially for the Toluca Valley, I didn't find any. So I really had to move forward in the chronology. So there are some gaps in times in which you know, we make assumptions more than knowing for sure how indigenous people handled their property. But what I could see in doing an analysis of how they did handle their property through a long period of time, starting from the 1650s on to the 1800s, uh, um, there is a change in terms of, uh, the, especially the landed property, becoming smaller. So it's something that we can see from within. We have scholarship that has been saying that indigenous communities in the central, uh, in the core of Mexico have been going through a process of uh, impoverishment all through the long 18th century. Yeah, we, we do see that happening through the testaments, and we do see that they react in a way that is much more individualistic. And in since when they are confronted with having less property, one big thing, for example, that came out of the analysis of inheritance practice is that they started at the beginning with having um, uh, an inheritance practice that was dividing up the property for all the children. And the more we, we go through the uh, 18th century, the more we see that they tend to leave the property undivided, choosing one hair or two hairs out of the old children and other people who live in the household they have. And I think this is something that they're doing to, as a way of responding to uh, the, impoverishment, the impoverishment and the fact that they have um, less property. And so they try to concentrate more to give a chance of survival for the household. Right? So that's something that made me think of this idea of the individual versus the community, when it's a matter of survival of your own, of your own household, and also the uh, shifting of the inheritance practices over time, moving from something that was more, if you want, in a way, more similar to the Spanish, sort of some uh, portions of their property being given to every child. That's the Spanish, though. You have, you know, four-fifths of your property is forced heirs; It needs to go to your children, and it seemed that, in a way, the indigenous people were behaving like that in the early colonial period. And the more we go through the 18th century, the less they do so. So they actually, that's a concrete example. They're not applying the Spanish law, which had been there through all the colonial period. They're reacting to their situation and making it more a matter of their own personal property. And one thing that is striking is that when they speak of the lands, we know that the lands originally came from the altiped, right? because the altiped was um, kind of, splitting up the lands that were communal lands and entrust them to the different households and the head of the household to be cultivated. But when we have a look at the way they handle these lands, they deal with the lands as if they are their own in their testaments. And that's another element that really resuscitates indigenous individual voice. Once the land is given to you, you as long as you make it um, fruitful and you cultivate it, it's your own. And you decide what you want to do with that when you have hairs and you need to leave it uh, behind. I hope.
1: And so yeah and are you seeing a lot of so there's a lot of wealth concentration amongst select individuals indigenous individuals in this period then by the 18th century is there kind of a wealth gap that's that's being created between maybe more elite indigenous society and, and less affluent indigenous society
0: You see I think that I mean we could we could say that although um, I think that is a general impoverishment uh, of this of indigenous um, people across the board in the Toluca Valley, and I didn't find, yes, there are some testators that are uh, particularly wealthy by the standards of the time, but the great majority of the testators I I studied are really, what we consider, it's like normal people. They have, you know, one building, and they all live in that building. They have another small building that they call cocina, the kitchen, and then they have one, two... Free plots of land, no more. Um, and so I think we're really having a look at uh, the kind of, not the, the um, standard commoners with no property, and there were certainly uh, people like that in indigenous communities, but I would say more that the what would be nowadays, the, a vast middle class in indigenous communities. These are the people that I see through the testaments. I studied over 220 testaments for this uh, for this book, and the great majority of, of the testators are people like that We one, two, maximum three plots of lands. We doesn't give you that much. It supports your family. And then across time, these plots of lands re- are reduced in size. That's one of the things that I was trying to do is just to measure the land. And when I analyze uh, the measure from the 1650s to the 1800, the plots are smaller and smaller they're getting more and more divided and that's also why they then eventually they decide to concentrate everything on one or two hairs because if they keep splitting it they don't give anything to anybody that is good enough for them to support their own household once they marry
1: that's great and and i um it's probably good to just take a step and and analyze what that household looks like because you do a good job of, of painting the various you know uh categories and parts of the household that are so instrumental to to the Nawa. So can you describe sort of what the, the house looks like and sort of the way that it's organized? You have these great maps that show the way that they organize their households in a physical way, but also some of the, the goods and objects that are being passed on between people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was another thing that really struck me when I started uh, doing this um, analysis because I, studied, I wanted to understand the household as it was in the early colonial period or... As we can imagine, it could have been before the Spanish arrived. So I started going from archaeological reports um, and sort of by through that. And then, of course, the scholarship that had been produced already. And Jim Locker was you know, an incredible point of reference because he does have a full chapter on a household in his masterpiece. Uh, yeah, you can see the influence, but I really do think he turned the field out upside down by, by what he did. So I put together all the material and I got to the understanding that the standard household model that we have a look at for this part of Mexico is the patio model, uh, with the patio as the reference point and buildings around it. Um, And the way I found it in the early colonial period, and they're referring back to the work of archaeologists, just there were separate buildings for uh, different people in the household. So usually you all started with one building with the the couple, the original couple. Um, And then when the kids were growing up and marrying, especially the, the male kids were staying uh, on the same plot of land, a building was added where the, the son who married was moving in and starting his own household. And so we, go, we went around the patio with all these different buildings. And then there was also in the early colonial period a separate building that they called in our de Santo Cali, meaning the house of the saints. And that comes from the pre-colonial period when they added and they put in their deities, the local deities and the deities of the household, and it was still there in the early colonial period probably with some images of uh, the, uh, the Catholic saints in it because it was called Santo Cali. So Santo really comes from the Spanish. So I thought that that was the idea of the house that I was dealing with. And then the more I um, studied the Toluca documents and I compiled a database to try to then rescue all dimensions of the different buildings through the documents and start uh, finding patterns, the more I realized that the testators getting into the 18th century, they were actually mentioning only one building. One building and then another building they kept calling the cosina, something that didn't happen in the early testament. So I thought that something interesting was happening in terms of maybe changes in the spaces of the household that I, I was not exposed before and I was not I, thinking that, you know, it was something I didn't think I was going to find when I started uh, looking at that. And then the more I came up with these patterns, the more it became clear to me that what, really what was happening was that they had finally one building and they were all living in that building. So even children, when they got married, they stayed in that building unless they were moving out and they were going to another Trashila Kali. And that meant it was another practical sense of, you know, on one side, probably impoverishment, so not having uh, plots of land big enough to build different buildings. And on the other side, that's what I say in the book, I think it's also this daily contact with, with um Uh, Spanish society, that's the way the Spanish lived. And that's why I have this analysis about the the household for the Spanish. It is much more a compact building. There is a patio in the Castilian and Andalusian um, uh, household, Uh, but there is a patio, but there is a compact building that is around the patio and everybody's living in there. And if you're wealthy, you have different rooms for different people. But if not in a a poor Spanish household, people live all together. There is always a cocina. And the, the, the indigenous people picked on that, and so they started having it in their households instead of having cooking with brassiers in, uh, outside in the patio or in the main building. And then the other thing that I noticed was that there was not a mention of the Santo Cali anymore. The Santo Kali seemed to have been kind of disappeared. What I found in Nahuatl all the time was this um, uh, Nahuatl, Ichancinko Dios, that I means the house of God. For the beginning, I thought that that was how they called the Santo Kali in the... In the later colonial period, and then I found out that they were calling Ichchaninko dios their residence, because they mentioned that they were sleeping in it. And finally, I got to the understanding that what they meant was that it was one building, they were sleeping in it, and the saints were in there with them. And that's when I started finding, I paid attention to that. I started finding they were referring to the altar of the saints in the same residence they were living. So I was kind of able to reconstruct these changes over time. And I found it, I I got very fascinated by it because I didn't imagine that something that big was happening. I mean, big for me because I love studying the household, but it's a radical change when we think about it. And this is much closer to what we see in indigenous communities nowadays, when even uh, poor communities, they usually have one big building, everybody's living there. When they're lucky, they have a cocina. But there is the first thing you see when you get into the households of indigenous people nowadays is that there is an altar with the saints in there. And it's not how they started. In the pre-colonial period, they had a separate building for their deities. So I think that the Testaments allow you to go back to all, reconstruct this dimension of the household, so how the space, the space, the special units of the household are uh, changing. And then we can also get at the objects. Uh, in the household. And that's another difference that I found. In the early colonial period, there is mention of so many things that they have. In the later colonial period, they almost nothing. And I don't think what well, partly can be impoverishment, but I don't think that they were living, you know, without pots and pans to cook or without uh, pieces of clothing. I think that what happens uh, for this period is that they, in the Testament, they really focus on what is more at stake. And it's the actual buildings and the land. Because the communities are getting poorer, they need to be sure that these kind of things are passed on in the way they want. And passing on pots and pans or some chicken becomes less um, less important for them. Probably also there is less quarrel over these things. But it really uh, fights lawsuits on the house the building and the lands. And then, of course, the, the things that they keep mentioning is the plants. So, magueys are always in the testaments because that's a big resource for them. Cattle, when they have big-sized animals, they do mention them. I found very few mentions of chicken and, and pigs, and it's not because they didn't have them. I really think that there is, on one side, an impoverishment, but on the other side, a focus on what really matters, that we make sure that it is passed on, because the rest is a bit more less essential at this stage. So we can definitely study what is in the household. It's just that across time we do see that some objects disappear. And I don't think it's because they're not there. I think because they're really going for the essential.
1: Well, and one of the things that seems to be at least mildly essential are these patron saints that you talk about and these, these relics, and I thought that was such an interesting uh, part of the whole process, and I wonder if you could describe, first of all, who produces these these patron saints, these images, and then uh, what kind of centrality they take within these families.
0: Yeah, there was the other thing, I mean, yeah, there are all these things that, oh, that is the other thing that I found out about, but that I thought it was fascinating. When I got into it and I started understanding that they actually live with them, and that's what you see, testaments after testaments, when they describe their household, they go for the buildings. second is the land, third is the saint. That's why I have all this idea in the book that we do need to think of the indigenous household as these three elements of one unit. Is the buildings, is the lot on which they build, built, and is the saints all the time. Because when the saints are there, they mention them. Many times they have just a general expression that the saints are there. Other times they tell us what saints are there. And that's very interesting because you get to see uh, who lives with them in terms of the saints, and oftentimes is not the prominent one, is not the patron saint of the of the community. So that tells us a lot in terms of, or at least opens to a lot of possibilities um, when we think of the way they were converted and the fact that you know there was the parish church with the priest and the patron saint is put on display in the parish church as a very important one, is processed around for all the processions and whatnot. But when we get into the household. It's not very important. They have their own saints. They, they choose. It might be a matter of a particular house or being attached to a particular saint, but it's, when the patron saint is there, it's always there with other saints, and it's not the, most of the time it's not the one, the first one that is mentioned. So it's telling us something of what happens in the economy of the house or when they have to choose their saints. Um, and what I'm trying to do is there is a whole study that can be done on who makes them, um, and that's actually the, you know, the new projects I'm, I'm getting into, so uh, I can uh, tell you more about that, but it's something when I, when I, studied, um, when I try, started studying the Testaments and thinking of the book um, that we're talking about today, I just realized that they are a fundamental presence that we need to consider, and there is a whole kind of realm of relationship that goes um, on around them. They are members of the household to the extent that they are given lands, like any other hair, the only thing, the only difference is that usually say, the, uh, the plot of land so and so is given um, to la Virgen uh, del Carmen, for example, and then they usually say that uh, the daughter or the son needs to take care of the plot of land. What it means is that there is somebody who practically needs to cultivate the land, but the, whatever they can get out of the land goes to the Virgen del Carmen, is the property of the Virgen del Carmen. So they seem to be uh, dealt with as resident in the household, but then there are also objects. And that's you can see that because they tell you what they're made of, In not all the time, but in many cases, so you can get the material aspect of that. And I think that that's a fascinating element, presence, that of course comes out of this influence of the Spanish. The Spanish brought the saints um, to Mexico, but the indigenous people had their deities with them before, so they kind of embraced the cult and made it their own. And we can just understand what happens if we ever look at the household. Because if we remain at the level, again, of the community, the parish church, we would assume that the patron saint or the community is the most important. And when we start even to look at the level below, they're all different dynamics. And I don't know if you want me to go more into the saints' um, telling you about the new projects or if we should stick to the book, whatever you prefer.
1: Oh, well, we can, we can go back to that towards the end of the conversation yeah, sure. if you want to. Um, but but it's such a fascinating aspect of this whole culture. And it, it maybe kind of gets us back to that question about uh, how much acculturation was going on. Because as you said, uh, this was part of kind of an appropriation of Spanish culture, but it was also likely a, a sort of pre-contact kind of uh, relationship with the with, uh, supernatural, right? So um, is there an easy way to talk about how much the Toluca Valley was influenced by the Spanish over the course of the 17th and the 18th centuries, or is it is it pretty difficult to disentangle where we have Nahua influence, where we have Spanish influence? Uh,
0: yeah, I think uh, it's such it's such a mix, right? It doesn't it shouldn't surprise us because many many people have been saying that, but I think that what what we can get at by having a look at the household dimension is try to disentangle a little bit this mix that sometimes it seems to be to be too difficult to see where things come from. I think from the point of view of the household we can ever look at this relationship of uh, um, conversion and accult- acculturation in a more detailed way because we can follow threads that we have through this testament. So one thing is this practical example that I just used, but the difference between the patron saint and their household saints is something that when we ever look at the precolonial, um, whatever we know of the precolonial deities, we see that, of course, we had the big deities that were important for everybody. But in every single household at the time, in the patio and the building they had in the patio, people add their household deities, and it's something that now I'm comparing more um, indigenous testaments with Spanish testaments, and I do see, for example, the difference that in indigenous testaments, the local, the household saints that they choose are much more prominent than in the Spanish uh, in the Spanish testament. So there seems to be an embracement of these. Um, a cult. Uh, they came from the Spanish, but at the same time, a re elaboration that they made it their own, and then they chose their priorities, and their priorities were different from the saint that the priest in the parish church were, was telling them to uh, to uh, worship. We do see some practices in terms of the worship of the saints that we can think again are a mix, absolutely. But then we can start disentangle uh, the mix when we compare them with the Spanish practices. So. Some offerings that were going on at some times of the year, uh, the sweeping of the floor in front of the saints. We can connect it back to the sweeping of the temples that the that indigenous people were doing well before the Spanish arrived. So we just go for the details. So it may be even a, just a tedious piling up of the details, but I think we get to disentangling that. And the ultimate result, I think, the ultimate conclusion is always that it is a mix. But I think it gives us a much more nuanced understanding of the dynamics of conversion and acculturation because we can see that of course it doesn't surprise us that the indigenous people had an active role in there but i I, it surprised me anyhow that we see it at the household level to such an extent that it gives us uh, the voice of the individual indigenous people going for that and making their choices and they're not community level choices it's their choices so i think that we do we can see a lot and we can Have a look at this indigenous Spanish acculturation process from a fresher angle that is not the one that we have been using because usually we stay at the community level. And so we can really see what happens. I wouldn't call it the battle for the household because it's not a battle. It's much more on a daily interaction. That's something that I try to um, talk about in the book. That's what I want to emphasize. That is really a daily, um, an issue of daily choices that many times are even unconscious. They're just matter of fact choices. You just choose something, as we do nowadays in our daily life, without thinking that we're making a particular statement. It's just, oh, yeah, I like that particular thing. It fits better my you know, my eye, or it's the same name that I gave to my daughter. So there are all these elements that we can get at, and they really um, rescue a lot of the individual, the individual choices that I want to uh, kind of emphasize. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I'm kind of giving you a clear answer for that, but I do think that... Uh, The ultimate result is what we know, and is this entanglement and this mixing, but I think we can start teasing it out. And I will add just one last thing on this. I think for me what is interesting is also when we go for this teasing out of the different elements, we can also see uh, the richness of that Catholicism and what was there that then was lost, for example, through times in many cases, because when the church came in and they really quite didn't like the way Indigenous people were dealing with saints, they tried to enforce, um, for example, the representation of certain saints was too blasphemous for uh, the local church and for the church in Rome whenever they realized that it was going on. So we have sort of periods in history in which we have this cracking down on the way Indigenous people are using the saints. And for me, reconstructing this entanglement allow us to understand how rich that Catholicism was and what was lost or gain through time by cracking down on that, and I think that that's an important aspect. Uh, we can we can become more uh, sort of we can get deeper, go deeper with this with this kind of analysis.
1: And, and you do I think you did a good job showing that relationship between the sort of household and the community. And there was one part that I was really struck with where you're talking about uh, uh, women who are convicted of adultery, and then they have to go off and be sort of supervised by another family. And there's an aspect of kind of community surveillance of the household. And, and is that sort of an aberration, that story that you tell, or is that sort of part of the way that these households are regulating each other?
0: Yeah, no, I would say there's definitely part of, uh, of the story. Um, of course, the cases of adultery that come through the, the, the documents are a little bit kind of the exception. Um, because on one side, I think that uh, there was a lot of that going on in indigenous society. Um, and uh, it was reported only when he became, too scandalous or too much of a problem, and that was the way it was dealt with. Now, their their way of you know being entrusted to a family to be supervised, is um, um is present in the Spanish law. It's called the deposito, and the Spanish were doing the same. Were doing the same way, so it's definitely a kind of you know a Spanish law that is coming in. What I think that is interesting to see is that for indigenous society, um, there was not necessarily a problem um, because indigenous society had a um, a much more fluid way to deal with relationships. Uh, it started. Many of them were starting actually not with marriage. There was a cohabitation, and if things were going well, then people were going to marry. Otherwise, they were separating with not too much problem. And in a way, when we have a look at this deposito, and how people are monitored, there is a lot of that that comes from um, Spanish authorities. Uh, trying to impose a regulation on uh, on relationships, and I think it's always interesting to see on one side the two sides uh, negotiating over that, but on the other side, when we think of the local Spanish society and what is happening between this uh, in uh, at the levels of, for example, the, the sort of the poor uh, Spanish people, there is much more of that that goes on. That is then similar to, in, to indigenous people in terms of adultery, in terms of. Uh, Uh, you know, informal relationships, contra, they were called in Spanish, the Barragania. So it was not really a marriage. It's just that you agree to live together. And and so Spanish society at the low level is more flexible than what we can think, um, than what we usually think. It's just that then it gets regulated from the above. And then all through the colonial uh, period, we see, again, a cracking down on some um, on some of this uh, behavior, so I think that indigenous women, adulterers, ended up in uh, being supervised in other households more because the Spanish had it as a practice, and because indigenous people really believed in that. But again, they embraced it, and it was fine in in the end. And after a while, these indigenous women were getting out of that deposito. The situation was solved. These are not too many cases, but I don't think it's because it was not really happening, I think, because only the most blatant cases were brought in front of Spanish authorities.
1: Mm-hmm. That's always the problem of doing kind of any legal searches into these things is you find the most extraordinary cases, right? Yeah. It's, it's, you have that temptation to spin it out further than it actually needs to go. Right. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, they are amazing cases usually. Right. And uh, again, cases where we have the individual voices coming through very much.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I'd kind of maybe just maybe a little bit broader for, for just a bit. Uh, I was wondering if there were certain issues that you weren't able to talk about in this book uh, that maybe the wills had that were just sort of hard to place or were there certain problems that you ran up against in trying to construct these households? Because one of the things that you you talk about kind of early on is that uh, there's actually no no Nahuatl word for family and, and that idea. I mean, how do you construct the history of the family when that culture doesn't have a term for that? And so I was wondering what some of the challenges were in trying to reconstruct this notion in a really complicated setting.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very good example because that's actually when I started working on that, I thought that I was going to find lots of references to a, a kind of sense of identity of the family. And then there is not specific Nawa term for that. What I kept finding are the terms for the household is uh, the Nawar kali or chan that means um, house or home. A little bit of the distinction that we have in English, although they you know they were used very much as synonyms in uh, in our testaments. But so there was one example of me needing to shift my approach and actually getting more into the household and then deciding that the household was really going to be the framework and what I talk about is the household, it's not the family. And that also allowed me to open up to a different understanding of what the household meant for Indigenous people because yes, it's skin-based and most of the people who live in there have kind of blood ties, but not necessarily so. We do find cases of you know, orphans living uh, within uh, this household or distant relatives or friends. It's, just, it's, a, it's a concept that is more the shared space. When people share this space on a regular basis because they all live there, those are the inhabitants of the household. So the idea of shifting from family to household allowed me to then think of the saints as another level of inhabitants of the household that wouldn't make sense if you stick to the conception of family, for example, because you don't think of, a, uh, again, the example of the Virgin with Carmen, you, you don't think of that as your sister or mother. Not really. It's just another inhabitant of the, of the household. So that, that's a good example of how need, I needed to shift by having a look at the te- following the terminology in, uh, in the sources. Yeah, there are, you know, there are some aspects that are difficult to get at, no matter what. And for example, it's the issues of belief, um, you know, how much is there uh, when we have a, a look at their sense of Catholicism? That How much is it, Did they really believe in that? I mean, the question of belief is something that is, uh, you can really, I made some um, informed uh, informed assumptions, and I, I hope they can be taken, but it's very difficult to then say, because in a way, the Testaments are very concrete when we go to the properties they discuss, the possessions and all, but uh, when we think of the formulas that are used, do they really believe when they start in the name of God, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or is more a formula that are picking on from the um, from the Spanish? So, issues of belief. I think the Testaments are good at getting to issues of ritual. We can definitely discuss the the Catholic ritual for funerals through what they do because they all in the Testaments they all mention how they want to be buried. So we can go for an analysis of which kind of shrouds. They, you know, they choose where is it that they want to be buried and what not. But did they really believe that? Is is there a sense, is that a kind of sign of the fact that they totally embraced uh, the Catholic um, funeral and they believed that they were going to go to heaven or to hell afterwards? So I think that, yeah, it left me, um, this analysis left some parts that I didn't feel I could uh, get into and the issues of belief are once, uh, granted, I you know I, I start more from the point of view of um, um, social history. I'm a very grounded social historian, so I don't do religious history. I think I have a look at these practices from the point of view of social history. If I were to venture into religious history, with that, I think I need to go through other sources. But what are the sources that can give you the indigenous voices, individual voices on what it is that they believe? We cannot interview them right? That's the problem with, with us, to do this kind of <laughs> history of the past, we just cannot ask people the question. So, I think these are issues that make, you know, they remain, like, there um, in the book, and they couldn't be addressed uh, with these kind of sources. But anything that is very is social history, or, you know, economic patterns, and whatnot, I think that you can really do that analysis with, uh, with the testaments. Um, that's, I think, I'm just thinking if I had any other, if it, I think... Uh, Some of the difficulties are related to the vocabulary that is, you know, the chapter I have on land and a distant land and trying to, get a sense of how much land they were talking about. And then they got into the way of measuring and they found out all different patterns because they were in some parts of the Toluca Valley, they were using the Spanish measures. In other parts, the the Nahuatl measures. So that created a little bit of difficulties. And that's why I'm also saying, you know, I'm giving there in the chapter an approximation to what I think is the amount of land these people had. It can never be certain because not everybody left testaments. So we cannot have... a pattern that is representative of the Old Valley, and uh, some lands were not mentioned in Testaments when they were too marginal, or so we could never be that sure that that's it. But by putting together these these patterns working on the database, you can get a good approximation. So that's another example where I did have many difficulties. I think the first two chapters, household and land, were the ones that took me the longest to write, to try to come up with these patterns and inheritance patterns and whatnot. So...
1: Well, is that sort of part of the explanation for why maybe there hasn't been as much work done on this particular time period? I mean, you mentioned that there's a lot done in the in the sort of 16th century, but then when you get into the 17th or the 18th, uh, it's really hard to access those lives. And do you think that that's because of the problems you just uh, elaborated here in terms of those native sources?
0: Yeah, you know, I think, yes. I think it is also an issue of uh, the excellent work that has been done on the early colonial period. and may, as, as a focus, most of the time is a uh, is a concrete community. So you take an altiped or, you know, an altiped in some Shilakali around it, and you can, if you have a good corpus of testaments, you can say wonderful things. But it's very difficult is to replicate that because you don't have that many cases in which you have a good corpus of testaments coming out of the same oh. more, more More often than not, they're scattered across a big region. And then when you try to kind of work on patterns through that, it really requires a lot of time because you have to try to find te- at least testaments that represent the old, uh, the old region and at least a few testaments for each settlement. So it takes a long time to put all this together because they're all in different archives and they come through different uh, different ways. And so I think partly is that, that when you want to move the analysis from the community level, the ultimate level, to something bigger, then you run into the problems of how is it that you can do it in terms of putting together the right amount of sources. And I think I was lucky that I found this first repository of testaments from the Toluca Valley in the Husgada Ecclesiastico de Toluca. And then from there, I ventured out in terms of gathering more information. Jim Locker was incredibly helpful in that. Stephanie Wood, um, who studied the the valley extensively, uh, shared some of the documents. So I really got a lot of help in that. But I wanted to get to this regional dimension, and I think it's a difficult one. To reconstruct and that's probably why uh, you know it's not then um, very easy to find other examples but that's what I'm hoping for other kind of this regional level studies for other parts of, of Mexico so then we can make comparisons and that is when this really becomes very fruitful because we can work on the on the differences and and try to understand what happened in the different regions but we do need I think at the scale created um, uh, a lot of complications and that's something that kind of scale I don't see it. In the early colonial period, it's more the community uh, level studies there, or the Mexico City makes the studies. There, you know, there are many books that are ex- um, excellent on Mexico City. It's just that for me, is not very. It's an exceptional case in itself. And when you go out in the countryside, what it is that you can do? You study one alphabet, but if you want to go bigger, you have all problems with the sources. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I think maybe that's a good place to kind of transition to your new projects. And we've uh, taken up a lot of your time so far today, so we can kind of close with this. But if you could sort of see, you know, where do we go from here? What's your next step in terms of fleshing out this history?
0: Sure. So as I said, I got so excited about the Saints that then I decided that that was going to be the next thing because it's really the element for me that came out as completely unexpected in their handling with lots of surprises. So what, I, what, I, what I'm thinking of doing now, what I've started doing now is that, uh, a study of the saints in the Mexican households through the colonial period on the Spanish side and on the indigenous side. So my idea is now to get, I understand the cult of saints in indigenous households a little bit better through the case of Toluca. And I understand that, that the chronology starts much later than what I thought because saints become a constant presence from the 1680s um, on. So much later than the actual conversion and the setting up of the parish Uh, the patron saints in the parish and and whatnot. So I'm going back to the Spanish side of the issue and I'm trying to understand, of course, saints in Spanish household in Mexico were there from the very beginning of the conquest because they brought them with them. So I'm trying to compare testaments and inventories on the Spanish side with the indigenous side and try to understand how they handle with the saints on both sides. And my idea is to do um, history of the saints in Mexican household from the point of view of the saints as... Uh, inhabitants of the households, and at the same time, from the point of view, the saints as objects. So bringing in all the material culture studies on that and try to get at the saints who produces them, your questions from before. We, it's very difficult to get at who produces them because unless there are saints in the uh, houses of the wealthy Spanish um, who paid for that, and so they're more or less renowned artists in colonial society, we actually don't have the name of who produces them. We can have categories. There are some artisans there, uh, specifically dealing with that. So I'm trying to reconstruct the material aspects of that, who produces them, how much they're worth, the material, um, the materials they go into, into producing the saints, and how they're traded and bought and sold, and then how people relate to them in the household. It goes from everything, from the worshipping to actually the throwing them outside of the window when they don't behave the way, uh, or they don't deliver, on something that you ask them. So it's just this world of the saints in the Mexican household that I really am fascinated with because you still find it when you go to Mexican households nowadays in many of them, not all indigenous. In Mexico City, you find the altar with all the different saints and there are a mix of things. So I, I want to get into that. So it's a I started, it's a long process because it's all through notarial records and those take a long time because you get into notarial archives and the only way they're classified is by the name of the notary so you have to do some sampling it so it's it's long but that's what i'm what i'm thinking of of doing and i'm very excited because again it's very much grounded in what was there in the house that's what i'm interested in but i really want to do both sides indigenous and spanish i think it's time to have a look at this on both sides and try to understand better what happened
1: that's great well we'll we'll try to be as patient as we can but uh (laughs) Again, really fascinating book, and I appreciate you coming and, and talking with us about this and the, describing the work. And again, it's it's such a nice look into the individual lives of, of the indigenous in Mexico in this period that hasn't really been studied quite as much as maybe it could. And so uh, we really appreciate the, you having written the book and for joining us for the discussion today.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. I was just so happy to be able to talk about this with you. Thank you, then.
1: All right. Thanks so much, Katerina. Right. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye.